That's introduction. Now let's just jump right into it. I don't want this video to be more than an hour long, and so we'll see. Uh, I'm going to go through three major kinds of texts that people use to object to the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. <clears throat> the idea that Jesus died with the intent of securing the salvation only of his elect, his sheep, his bride, the church, when he died on the cross. Right? So Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain, and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, etc. Now here are the major objection texts, and these are texts that I don't want to distort, I don't want to misuse, I don't want to misunderstand, but you got to hear me out here. When you're doing theology, systematic theology is simply saying, what does all of Scripture teach about subject X? So when someone says, what is true about angels and demons? When you start to answer, you're probably not going to be answering from one text. You're going to be bringing together a host of texts. I mean, demons are mentioned in Deuteronomy, uh, worshiping demons behind idols. Demons are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 8. Demons are mentioned throughout the Gospels and in, the, in Revelation and on and on. And angels are all over the place. So you're taking the cumulative data in Scripture about them, bringing them together, and then saying, here's the unified teaching of Scripture. I don't think Scripture contradicts itself. I don't think anything Scripture says about the atonement or about anything is contradictory. There may be, um, th there may be an apparent tension in certain texts. There might be different leanings, different emphases in different texts, but I don't think that there is any contradiction. So, let's work through some of the major texts that are used by the unlimited atonement view, the Arminian side, the Wesleyan side, the provisionist side, the provenient grace side that would argue against the position that our church holds, uh, at least that our elders hold, uh, to, uh, to limited atonement. So number one, there's three, going to be three categories. Number one, the Greek word pos, all, and its possible meanings. So the, the word all, the, the argument is there's texts that say Jesus is a ransom for all, pos. How much more clear could it be? Who is he a ransom for? Everyone. Pos. All. Everybody. Without exception. Without qualification. All without uh, exception. And I want to say, is it really going to be that simple? So the Greek word pos, all, can mean different things depending on context, including all without exception. Every single one of a group. This could be all people in the world without exception. Every single person who's ever lived. And it can also just be all the people in a room all of you in this room. The word also importantly can mean all without distinction, which would be some of every kind. And yes, that really is a, a, an understanding of the verse. Now, we covered some of this in Sunday school. I'm going to speed through this. If you haven't seen that, you can go look at our Sunday school page. Hebrews 2, a classic text used by unlimited atonement against the view that I hold would be this. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And people would say at this point, well, look, it cannot be any clearer than this. Jesus tasted death for everyone. That's the Greek word pos. Obviously, Jesus died for all without exception. This could not say it more clearly. And I want to say, listen, let's slow down before just taking a proof text and jumping to a conclusion. There's an old saying. I've heard it from Don Carson. Others have said it. I don't know who originated it. A text without a context, becomes a pretext for a proof text. I think I don't know what about half those words mean, but <laughs> you kind of get the idea. A text, like this verse right here, this is a text. A text without a context, what goes before, what comes after this verse to, to, to shed light? A text without a context, a text divorced from its immediate context, becomes a pretext for a proof text. In other words, it can, be, it can be misused. You can make the Bible say anything you want if you take verses out of context. So, I don't want to take the verses out of context whether I end up being an Arminian or a Calvinist. Now, I am a Calvinist. I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, but I don't want that to determine how I interpret texts ultimately. I want them to be read in their context and then compared Scripture with Scripture. So when you compare this verse, in its, when you put it in its context, let's read the very next verse. Who is the everyone that Jesus tasted death for? Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so I'm going to argue that this is God the Father, is the he here, God the Father. Uh, he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory uh, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the founder of their salvation right here, that is the son. You see that? 
The founder of their salvation is the son, which makes the he who made the founder perfect through suffering, makes the he the father. That's God the father. And I, just as a footnote here, Jesus being made perfect through suffering does not mean that Jesus was morally imperfect before he suffered. What it means is Jesus had, in order to become a sacrifice of atonement for us, he had to suffer. And so he was perfect morally, but he was not yet able to atone for sin until he actually did it. And so that's, that's what I think that verse is referring to. So what does it say here? It was fitting that the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. So who is the all for whom Jesus died? The many sons who are, who are, who are, who are, who are going to glory. That's the elect only. That's the sheep only. Should make the founder of their salvation. So God sent Jesus, God sent Jesus, God the Father sent Jesus to be the founder of their salvation. That is, those who are going to end up in glory. The many sons who are going to go to glory, it's their salvation. He wasn't sent for the world's salvation without exception. He was sent for many sons who are going to glory, their salvation. That's who Jesus was sent for. And he's made perfect through suffering. Now look at this. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. So do you see here? Who is the group that Jesus was sent to save? The many sons going to glory, those who will have their own salvation, their salvation, those who are sanctified. That's only God's true people, only the elect. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus came to die for his spiritual brothers. He didn't come to die for those outside of his spiritual family. Next verse, I will tell of your name to who? My brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus is talking about the true brothers who make up God's congregation, God's true people. That's who he came to save. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, so this is, this is God the Son, and the children God has given me. Now, if you've been watching our other videos recently in John uh, 6 and 10, the children God has given, the sheep whom God gave, those whom the Father has given to the Son are the elect and the elect only. You can go back and watch the, the other videos on that. So Jesus says, I and the children. So Jesus has come to do what? To save the children God has given him. In John, he says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's very consistent with John's theology, although Hebrews was not written by the Apostle John. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, verse 14. Since therefore, now who is it now? The children, that's God's true spiritual children, the elect, share in flesh and blood. Uh, he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for surely it is not angels that he helps. So you see here already, there's a limitation, not angels that he helps, but who? He helps or he came to die to save who? The offspring of Abraham. Now, do you see particular redemption? Since the children, that is the true spiritual children of God, the, the, true, the, true, uh, the offspring of Abraham, do you see that? The children are the offspring of Abraham, true spiritual offspring of Abraham. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself, now look, here's why the incarnation happened, okay? Jesus himself, right here, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is uh, flesh and blood, physical body, that through death, so here again, you've got a purpose clause that through death, what's his goal? He's going to defeat the devil, destroy the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Who is, the, who is this group he's going to save from the fear of death? It's not angels. They don't have a redeemer. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. So again here, you see, the children are the offspring of Abraham and it's, it's those people that Jesus died through death, through death, he came to save. That is, that's who the all is here in this text. It's all the true offspring of Abraham, all the children, all the brothers. But if that's not clear enough, I think this next text, the very next verse is shocking. I did not get to this on Sunday, uh, unfortunately. Verse 17, therefore, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers. Again, that's only believers in every respect sin. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We've talked about how the priesthood is connected 
to atonement in recent videos. Become merciful and faithful high priest and the servants of God to do what? This is just the clincher. I wish I had read it in Sunday school. What was Jesus' goal? It's to make propitiation for the sins of every human being in the world. Is Jesus going to take away the wrath of God for every sin of everyone in the world? No, then no one would perish in hell. Everyone would end up in the new creation and in life. But no, he was made like who? Not everyone. He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. What was his goal as priest and his sacrifice and his intercessor? To make propitiation for the sins of the elect, the people. Because the only people whose sins are propitiated are those who end up not paying for their sins in eternity. Those whose sins are truly forgiven are the only ones whose sins are truly propitiated. So I think that is, that is very clear. So if we go back to the first verse here, I just heard uh, a pastor uh, online who was using uh, this verse to argue for unlimited atonement. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor so that by the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And I, I just heard someone say, like, th this could not be clearer. Everyone means everyone without exception, every single person in the world. But a text without its context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Everyone, pass all in context is the sons, those who are saved, those who are sanctified, the brothers, my brothers, the congregation, the children God has given me, the children, the offspring of Abraham, Christ's brothers, and the people for whom he dies. So in context, all does not mean every single person in the world. It means all of God's true children in context. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really amazing when we slow down. Also in Sunday school, I mentioned this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that now here we go. One has died for all. There's pos again. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So who is the their sake? Jesus died and was raised for their sake. Who is the there? Who, who is this group that he was died and raised for? And you find out here, one has died for all, pas, same word. And therefore all, pas, have died. This verse is used all the time to argue against limited atonement, but it actually teaches limited atonement. That's the surprising thing here. Because look at it real quick. The group, it says one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. I will argue, and I don't think this is hard to see, the all here is the same as the all here. The all he died for is the all who died with Christ. Now look, everyone he died for is everyone who has died with Christ. The question is, can you die with Christ and not be saved? And the answer is no, because look at, look at a great cross-reference. Romans 6, same author, Paul, Romans 6, 5. For if we have been what? united with him in death, in a death like his. What's going to be the result? We shall certainly be what? United with him in a resurrection like his. Everyone who dies with Christ in his death will certainly be united with him in his resurrection, which means everyone who dies with Christ is raised with Christ, which means everyone who dies with Christ is a believer, is one of the sheep, is one of the elect, and will be saved. Verses, a couple verses later, for this is Romans 6, 7. For one who has died, that is, died with Christ, has been what? Set free from sin. So everyone who dies when Christ dies is set free from sin. But who is set free from sin? Not all, without exception, every believer, every true child of God. Now, if we have died with Christ, what do we believe? Paul says, we believe that we will also live with him. Everyone who dies when Christ dies, everyone who dies in Christ's death is set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. In other words, if you die with Christ, you live with him. Everyone who died with Christ lives with him. All who die with Christ are the elect, the believers only. No unelect person dies with Christ. No unelect person lives with Christ. Only those who receive Christ by faith. Colossians 3.3, same point. For, he's talking to believers. For you have died. He's talking about died with Christ not died physically. They haven't died. He's talking to them. No, he means died with Christ spiritually. If you, for you have died and what? Your life, 
is hidden with Christ in God. Everyone who dies with Christ, their life is hidden with Christ. Only believers die with Christ. Only believers live with Christ. Okay? So let's go back to the original verse. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. The all who Christ died for are the all who died with Christ, which means they're the same group in the next verse. He died for all that those who live. Those who live are those who die with Christ. Everyone who dies with Christ lives with Christ. So everyone Christ died for, die with Christ and lives with Christ. So again, this verse actually teaches particular redemption, not, uh, not unlimited atonement. All right, now, if, you're, if, you've, if you've heard the other talks, this was, a lot of that's review. Let's get to some really new territory here, I think. This is one of the hardest texts on this issue for my side to answer, but I think if you slow down and study it carefully, you will see that it can be answered, actually, I think, to great satisfaction. It has persuaded me. Second, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for, now look at this, we're going to introduce a bigger Greek term here, all people, that is pos anthropos. So we are, we've already heard the word pos, all, which can be everybody without exception or everyone without distinction. It has different meanings, but now we're going to add the word people, mankind. So we'll get the English word anthropology, the study of human beings. So pos anthropos means all people, okay? So I urge that prayers be made for all people. For kings, all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now look at this. Who desires all people, same phrase, pos anthropos, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, it sounds universal. Pray for everybody, without exception. God desires everybody to be saved, without exception. For there, verse uh, five, I believe. Yep. Verse five, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now here it's not, the word anthropos is not there, but you do have the word, um, you do have the word all, pos, gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is a testimony given at the proper time. So th this is a strong text, it appears at first glance at least, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Gave himself as a ransom for all. I mean, that, that just seems very strong for a universal text. <clears throat> so here is what uh, one uh, person arguing for the multiple intentions view, which includes unlimited atonement, Josh Hammett, writes this. And I'm getting some of these quotes from Mike Riccardi's excellent uh, PhD dissertation, called To Save Sinners on Limited Atonement that just came out this year. Taken at face value, the wording of 1 Timothy 2.6 seems to indicate clearly a universal or general intention in the atonement. That's his argument. That's the argument of a lot of people. I mean, just at face value, this text is very clear. 1 Timothy 2.6 seems to indicate clearly a universal or general intention in the atonement. I mean, you look back at the verse, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And in the context, you've got God desiring all people to be saved and praying for all people. It sounds like this is unlimited atonement. I mean, what do you say, Mr. Limited Atonement, Mr. Particular Redemption Person? What, what do you say? Well, I want to go back to this quote. Taking it at face value. Let's, let's slow down here. At face value is a tricky, tricky way to talk in regards to this word pos all, or pos anthropos, all people. Let's be careful about face value here, okay? Because he says, at face value, just read the verse, it's clearly talking about universal or unlimited atonement. Well, let's be careful about just taking every verse at, quote, face value. I mean, what does that even mean? Look, look at Romans 5, 18. So one act of righteousness, okay, this is, this is uh, the cross, okay? That's, that's, that's a picture for the cross there. Christ's obedient life culminating in the crucifixion. One act of righteousness leads to, now look, justification and life for whom? For pos anthropos, for all men, for all people. Now, I think Josh Hammett would be the first person to say this does not teach universalism. But do you see how a universalist, that's someone who believes everyone goes to heaven after they die. That's a universalist. 
And that's a heretical false teaching. I mean, that's a seriously false teaching. Jesus said, the way is, Jesus said the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many enter thereby. Paul talks about people perishing. It's all over the Bible. This is definitely unbiblical, the idea of, of universalism. But you see how a universalist could look at this verse and say, well, uh, what, how would you say? At face value, this verse seems to clearly indicate that everyone will be saved because it says, by one act of righteousness, the cross, Christ's obedient life culminating in the, in the cross, leads to justification in life for pas anthropos, all people, everybody, without exception, every single person. Now, do you see? Even the Arminian at this point is going to say, hey, 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 hang on just a second. Pas anthropos doesn't have to mean every single person without exception. Clearly, in this verse, we would agree, all men refers to all people, what? Who die in Christ. All people in Christ. All people represented by Christ. All people whom... Uh, Christ is their federal head. All who are united to Christ, right? So immediately, even the strongest five-point Arminian is going to say, yes, pas anthropos can refer to a subset of everybody. It doesn't have to refer to every single person. Otherwise, this is universalism. No, all people in Christ. It's, it, this is delimited to the elect, the true people of God, the sheep. So please don't think I'm misusing the text to say pas anthropos, all or all men, can refer to less than every single person. It really can so let's talk about the context of 1 Timothy. Tom Schreiner, who's one of my favorite New Testament theologians, he's a Calvinist, he says this, in this epistle, 1 Timothy, Paul confronts some kind of, this is important, some kind of what? Exclusivist heresy. Some kind of Jewish-only, Jewish superiority, semi-Gnostic, elitist view of exclusivism, which is unbiblical. Gordon Fee, who's an Arminian, who's a, who's a very good, generally, Arminian scholar. He's bad on gender roles because he's a bit of an evangelical feminist. And he's also bad on uh, soteriology because he's an Arminian. But Gordon Fee is generally a very good New Testament commentary, commentator. He says as an Arminian, the concern in 1 Timothy 2 is simply with the universal scope of the gospel over against some kind of heretical exclusivism and narrowness. So you're starting to see agreement between Calvinists and Arminians 1 Timothy is written to combat an exclusivist Jewish heresy. Philip Towner, who also believes in unlimited atonement from what I can tell, uh, he says this, quote, the reason behind Paul's justification of this universal mission is almost certainly the false teaching with its, look, Torah-centered, its Jewish sort of centered approach to life that included either an exclusivist bent or a downplaying of the Gentile mission. I, I think it's both of those, by the way. I think it's both an exclusivist bent that led to a downplaying of Paul's Gentile mission. Because it, it was a Torah-centered Jewish elitist perspective heresy. And so therefore, it was exclusive to the Torah-centered Judaism of this belief system. And therefore, they also would downplay the Gentile mission of Paul, thinking that Gentiles were beneath them and that Christ didn't come for them. He came for this, uh, for this Jewish group only. So he says, Paul's focus is on building a people of God who incorporate Look, all people, what does all people mean? Regardless of ethnic, social, or economic backgrounds. In other words, not every single person without exception, but all kinds of people. Uh, every kind without distinction. Mike Riccardi, who's a Calvinist, he's an elder at John MacArthur's church. He looks like he's about my age. Um, he's, he did his dissertation on this. Quote, it would be very natural for Paul to employ universalistic language, such as all men and ransom for all, pos, in order to undermine this exclusivist teaching. Paul intends to say that the benefits of Christ's sin-bearing substitutionary atonement are not restricted to an elitist sect. I completely agree with this, and so does almost everybody else, but are to be enjoyed by all kinds of people throughout the world. Okay, so do you see We've got to know what Paul's up against when he writes 1 Timothy so that we understand why he phrases things the way that he does. One more quote. I know you're probably getting tired of these quotes, but I want you to see that this is the consensus view even with Arminians. I, Howard Marshall, who is a wonderful Arminian New Testament scholar who died just a few years ago. Um, his commentary on Acts and other books of the Bible are, are very useful, but he is definitely an Arminian. And that's what he says about 1 Timothy. He, he also spent a good bit of time, apparently, in his work studying the pastoral letters, including 1 Timothy. I. Howard Marshall says, this universalistic thrust is most probably a corrective response to, <laughs> uh, 
an exclusivist understanding of, of salvation connected to the false teaching. The context shows that the inclusion of Gentiles alongside Jews in salvation is the primary issue here. So even as Arminian, he says, look, the main thing Paul is dealing with is an exclusivist, uh, Jewish-centered, elitist view of the Christian life, which is a heretical false teaching that wants to leave Gentiles out of salvation and wants to limit what Christ came to do only to Jewish people. And Paul is pushing back and therefore using universal uh, language to say, no, the Gentiles, the whole Gentile world is included, not just this narrow Jewish elitist sect. Now, did you see tremendous agreement <clears throat> across the board there with scholars? Yes. Now let's go back to the original text. Let's see if we can see it in a different light. Is it all without exception, all people without exception, or all people without distinction? In other words, is it every single person or every kind of person? What is Paul trying to say? All right. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings are made for pas entre pas, all people. And he's going to tell us what he's talking about. Look, for kings, for all who are in high positions. These are kinds of people. This is, I think this is a very strong point. I didn't make it up, okay? This has been talked about a lot. All people can mean every person, or it can mean every kind. Are we talking about all kinds of people or every single human being on earth? Well, if, he's, if, if we're being commanded to pray for every single person on earth, that's something that you can't do. Uh, unless you do it generically, to actually sit down and with a phone book and read every single name and pray for every one of the hundreds of millions and billions of people, that's not what, this can't mean every single individual without exception. He means pray for all kinds of people, and then he starts listing kinds of people. Kings is a certain kind of people. Those in high positions, different kinds of positions, governors, and on and on and on. Pray for not just low people, but high people, people of great authority and low authority. Pray for all kinds of people. That's what all people means. All kinds of people. Kings, those in high positions, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. I think this means God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Okay? I think God, God, I, I, God desires to save all kinds of people. He, desires to save, he wants to save Jews. He wants to save Gentiles. He wants to save Americans, you could say today, and he wants to save South Americans. He wants to save, save uh, Hispanics. He wants to save uh, people from uh, all over the world. He wants to save Africans. He wants, on and on and on, Europeans. He wants to save all kinds of people and from every class of life. He wants to save presidents and kings. He wants to save Fortune 500 company owners. He also wants to save the poorest of the poor and the most neglected of the neglected. He's not going to save every single one, but he's going to save from every kind. This reminds me, again, of Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every group. He didn't ransom every group. He didn't ransom everyone without exception. He ransomed everyone without distinction. He ransomed all kinds. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So this is the same kind of thing. All people means some of every kind. He bought people for God from every tribe. He desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is, now this is uh, amazing theology here. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the one access point that the world has, and I do mean everyone, to God is the one mediator that God has provided, with, with, which is Jesus. And anyone who trusts in that one mediator will be saved. It, it reminds me very much, and I don't have a slide of it, but the language here is extremely similar to Romans chapter 3, isn't it? And again, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? Is God the God of Jews only? See, he's dealing with Jewish exclusivism in, first, in the pastoral letters in general. The circumcision parties mentioned in Titus 1, these Jewish elitists who are obsessed with genealogies and have this certain view. So he says, listen, I, I, I'm not for this Jewish elitism. No, there's only one God. Not, there's not a God for Jews and another God for Gentiles. There's one God. There's one mediator. There's only one Savior, Jesus, uh, between God and men. This is not just one man. It's not just Jewish men. This is Jewish and Gentile. All men in the world, God is, there's one God of all men. There's one media provider for mankind. And you've got to trust in Christ to be saved. But listen to Romans 3. 
Is God the God of Jews only? No. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, through faith. So you see, see what's going on there? When, when we emphasize that there's only one God, Paul is often talking about the Jew and Gentile harmony in the gospel. Say, so it is here. When he's dealing with Jewish elitism, he emphasizes that there's only one God for Jews and Gentiles, there's only one mediator for mankind, for Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus Christ is the one Savior we must trust to be saved, and he gave himself as a ransom for pus, all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So you got all, all people. Okay, you see here? Jesus was given as a ransom for all. In context, all is all kinds of people, kings, kings those in high positions, not Jews only, but Gentiles. God desires to save all kinds of people. We should pray for all kinds of people because Jesus is a ransom for all, for all kinds of people. He's not just a ransom for a Jewish elitist sect. He's a ransom for all. And the very next verse confirms this, verse 7, which I couldn't fit on the same slide. For this, so for this gospel message, right? For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of who? The Gentiles. So Paul is clearly not talking about every single individual human in 1 Timothy 2, at least I don't think he is. He's talking about all kinds of people. He's battling a Jewish elitist sect that is undermining his Gentile mission. So he says, listen, we got one God for mankind. We got one God for all kinds of people. He wants to save all kinds of people. We should pray for kings and those in authority. We should pray for all kinds of people, pos, anthropos. And Jesus was a ransom given for pos, for all. And look, for this message of Christ dying for all, all kinds of people, I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher of Gentiles. He doesn't mean every single individual person he's gonna preach to. He means I am not just a Jewish elitist. I'm preaching to all kinds of people, the Gentiles. So again, the Greek word pos or all can mean different things depending on the context. It can mean all without exception, right? It could be um, all the people in the world. It could be all the people in a room. Or it could be referring to all without distinction. And what is that? Some of every kind. And I'm arguing that in 1 Timothy 2, he's arguing about some of every kind, not every single individual person. And I think that that very much contextually fits what Paul's saying. Okay, for if you're tempted to say, I'm reading my theology into the text, okay, we're always reading our theology in light of the text. We should do it humbly. If the text truly, in context, contradicts our theology, we should change, tweak, edit, adapt, whatever, repent of our theology and make it submit to the text. But my theology, which I'm getting from all over the Bible, does not automatically contradict 1 Timothy 2. In fact, I think the way I've just explained it which isn't original with me, so I'm not bragging about this. This is from all kinds of people who've explained it this way that I've read and learned from. Taking it the way I've just explained it, there is zero contradiction between 1 Timothy 2 and limited atonement. If, if, if post-anthropos means all kinds of people, it fits the context, and it makes perfect sense grammatically. There is no distortion of the text, I don't think, here. I think it fits in perfect harmony with what I've said. In fact, look here at the word uh, from the Blue Letter Bible. The word post can be defined individually, all, individually, means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. And look at the second definition. All can mean what? Not just uh, individually. It can also mean collectively. And how is that defined? Some of all types. And that's how I think Paul's using the word in 1 Timothy 2. He's a ransom for pos, for all. You could argue it's every single person, but I think there are good reasons from other texts to say it doesn't mean that. I think that there's abundant texts that teach particular redemption. Therefore, of these two options, I think some of all types fits with what other passages say, and Scripture harmonizes with Scripture. It's to be interpreted with Scripture. But I think here, some of all types actually fits the immediate context of 1 Timothy 2, praying for kings, those in high positions, etc. It's Gentiles as well as Jews, not just Jewish elitism. Now, let me just give you examples of how the word pos or all can be used in this sense, the collective sum of all types sense. I'm just going to show you a smattering of verses. Here we go. Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter. The Greek word is simply all evil. It's pos evil. That's it. All evil against you falls to my account. How does the ESV translate it? 
rightly, it translates past all kinds of evil. That's exactly right. And this one's really famous. You've probably heard the love of money is the root of all evil. The word all there is pas, and it's better translated as the ESV does. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, of evils. The love of money is not the one root of every single expression of human evil in human history. It's not, that's not what it means. No, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of evil. Every kind of evil you can imagine essentially can spring from a coveting, craving, lusting sort of love of money. So again, it means all kinds there. Revelation 21, the foundations of the walls of the new Jerusalem were adorned with pas jewel, every jewel, all jewels. Well, it really means every kind of jewel uh, there. Okay, now let's go back to 1 Timothy 1, 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all kinds of people is what that verse is saying. Pas anthropos. Let me give you an example of kinds of people. Kings, those in high positions, God desires all kinds of people, pas anthropos, all kinds of people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. That means all kinds of people in context, not just an elitist group of Jews, but also, as Paul says, Gentiles as well. Look at Luke 6, 26. I think we already covered that one. I already covered that one. Oh, here's another example here. Oh, no, that, we did not cover that. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so they did their, to, their, to their fathers. All people speaking well of you does not mean every single person in the world is going to speak well of you. It means, pass out the boss. When all kinds of people speak well of you, beware. That might be, a, that's a bad sign. Uh, Acts twenty two fifteen. Tom Schreiner pointed this one out to me. Paul is told, for you, Paul, will be a witness for him, for Jesus, to everyone or to all people, pas anthropos, of what you have seen and heard. Now, the ESV translates it, everyone, some translations translate it, I think all men or all people. Clearly, is Paul going to be a witness personally, sharing the gospel with every single human being who has ever lived or was living in the day he was alive? No. So what does pas anthropos mean here? Paul is going to witness to not just Jews, he's going to witness to what? Pas anthropos all kinds of people. I hope you're seeing that this is not the only way it's used, but very frequently it can mean all kinds. Here's what Tom Schreiner says. In Acts 22, 15, when Paul speaks of being a witness to all people or everyone, pas anthropos, he clearly does not mean, he does not mean all people without exception. All refers to the what? All refers to the inclusion of Gentiles and his missions. Not all, not everybody, but all in opposed to only Jews. All Gentiles as well as Jews. And then six verses later, this is confirmed in Acts 22, 21. And he said to me, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, do you see that? It's not, every, Paul's not going to witness to every single person. He's going to witness to pas anthropos, all people, all kinds of people, which means Gentiles, all different kinds of Gentiles, not just Jews. All right, I think that, that's clear. Summarizing microcardi, Paul's universalistic language in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 6, is best interpreted as the Father intending to save and the Son atoning for what? All kinds of people. People from different social classes. Pray for kings and those in high authority, rulers versus common people, from different ethnicities. He's preaching to Jews as well as a Gentile mission that Paul has. And even people from different moral backgrounds. Because just before chapter 2 in 115, he called himself the chief of sinners. So Christ came to die for people of different classes, ethnicities, moral backgrounds. He came to die for all kinds of people. This text is not teaching he died for all without exception. All right, let's move to the next one. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there you go. There it is again. Bringing salvation for all people. Does this mean every single person or every kind of person? Well, let's look at the context. Remember, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Let's look at this verse in context and see if we get a clue. And it's just like the First Timothy 2 text. Look with, this, look, look with me now. See if you find kinds of people. Older men are to be sober-minded, etc. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, etc. They're to train who? 
young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, working at home, etc. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul's not saying, teach every single old man in the world, every single older woman in the world, every young woman, and every husband, and every child, and every young man. No, what's he saying? Teach all kinds of people. Not every individual, but teach people from each of these groups. So in context, Titus 2, in verses 2 through 6, are we dealing with kinds rather than every single individual? Yes. Now look, look at the very, look, look, skip ahead to verse 9. Do we still have kinds? Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. Are those kinds of people in everything? Yes. So we're still talking about kinds of people. Now we get to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for what? For who? For all people. All kinds of people. In context, Paul Sandra Boss clearly is talking about all kinds of people. He came for old men and old women and young women and young men and for children and for uh, everyone else in the middle of slave and free, for bond servant and master. He came for everybody. Every single kind of person he came to bring salvation to. And then verse 14 it says, he gave himself, who gave himself, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. So again here, this is the elect, for us to redeem us, to make a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Down here, you have a limitation. It's, it's God's people who are redeemed, us, us, a people for his own possession that you see. So in context, I don't think it's referring to that. And if, if you look at the next chapter, Titus 3, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers. That's a kind of person. And authorities, another kind of person to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards pas under pas, all people. He doesn't mean we need, to find, we need to be courteous towards every single human being on earth because we're not going to run into every single person. He means be kind, show courtesy toward all kinds of people, whether they're rulers or authorities or whatever they are, show courtesy toward all kinds of people, whatever kind of person you run into. So again, I think in context, that verse does not teach what's often taught to what people often think it teaches. Now, here, here's another really tricky verse, at least at first glance. I, I admit this has been a verse, it's been very hard for me to understand. There's so many ways you could take it. There's like four or five options that it's just hard to know. So First Timothy, same book, chapter four, verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, I think here it's most likely God the Father, although we could debate that point. God, who is the Savior of pas anthropos, all people. And then here's something interesting. Especially of what? Of those who believe. Now, I grant you, this is a tricky verse. What exactly is being said here is, is obviously debated. But this is one of those texts where I think all people has to refer to every single individual. When, we know the phrase can mean all or all kinds, depending on the context. And in this particular context, I think this has to be every single individual because it's opposed to believers. Watch. God, I believe God the Father, who is the Savior of all people, every single person, but especially the Savior of those who believe. Now, in what sense, how is God the Savior of everybody, but especially believers? You see that? He is the Savior of all, I think this means truly all, but especially believers. How is God the Savior of all? This has to mean everybody because uh, it doesn't just include believers because believers are distinguished from this group. He's the Savior of all, especially those who believe. So if, if all here is the whole world, every single human being, which I think it is in this text, Believers are a small subset of that larger group. He's the savior of everybody in hum humanity, but especially the savior of believers. And there's a lot of theories. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but this is the one that I think is the most convincing. Mike Riccardi calls it the temporal eternal view. And in context, that's the key. In context, this view makes the most sense to me. Here's what Mike Riccardi says. This view holds that God is the savior, especially of believers, in that he not only rescues them from temporal dangers... Oops, temporal dangers, like all other people. But he extends that deliverance all the way into eternity by blessing them with spiritual salvation. 
So you follow this? Believers are rescued from temporal dangers during their time in this life. They're given life and breath and food and clothing for a time. That's temporal rescue from danger. And that's what God gives everybody. Common grace. God gives everybody rain, uh, fruitful seasons, satisfies their heart with good things. God bears witness from heaven through creation that he's there. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen so that we're without excuse. He provides us with every oxygen, every breath of oxygen we take, every food, every bit of food we eat, any kind of luxury or enjoyment or a good night's sleep. These are temporal deliverances from danger that are given to every single person without exception. I know eventually those things run out. Eventually we get our last breath, our heart beats for the last time, we eat food for the last time, and eventually some danger does overtake us and we die. Whether it's cancer or a car wreck, eventually that's true. But there is a temporal, that's why the word temporal is here. That's the whole point, right? There is a temporal deliverance that God gives to all people, a temporal deliverance that is given to all people. But he extends deliverance into eternity, all the way into eternity, only for believers. For believers, yes, there's temporal rescue like everybody, but everybody does not get rescued into eternity with spiritual salvation from sin. Now, if that makes sense, that's what I think this verse says. We have set our hope on the living God who is the savior of pos anthropos. I think here it means every single person without exception, especially those who believe. God saves everyone in the common grace sense of he holds us back from his wrath. The kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. He gives us like I said, rainy and fruitful seasons and food and good sleep and friends and family and all those things. And yes, some people have more of that than others, but everyone has some degree of common grace. So God does, in a sense, save all people from danger and from wrath, temporarily all people, but he especially and eternally saves believers for all of eternity. Now you say, okay, what's the con context? Text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Let's look at the context of 1 Timothy 4.10. Let's look at verse 7. This is an amazing context here. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness. Now he's going to make a contrast. For what? Bodily training is of some value. Now please note here, there is some value, there is some value in physical, this world, bodily training and exercise. There's some value. And who gets that value? Everybody, to some degree, has some of that. Whether you're a believer or not, you can train your body, right? But he says, look, here's the contrast. Godliness, godliness is of value in every way. Why? Why is godliness not just beneficial in this life, but the life to come? Well, because it holds promise for what? the present life, and also the life to come. This life and also eternity, the life to come. Now, do you see in context already that Paul is contrasting the blessings that come in this life with the blessings that come to us eternally? You see that? That's, that's the immediate context. We should devote ourselves mainly to training in godliness. Why? Paul's not against bodily training. He says it actually does have some value. When does bodily training have value? It has value in this life. Not so much eternally. It has value in this life. Eventually our body will die. But bodily training is of some value. But godliness is in value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul right now is contrasting earthly blessings like bodily training and eternal blessings like eternal reward and godliness and eternity. And he says, the saying is trustworthy. Here's where we're at. And deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, so he hasn't moved on from what he just said, right? The saying is trustworthy, for to this end, we work really hard. We toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is what? He is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, I may lose all of us here by my drawing, but let's just look at this here. I'm going to get a little crazy here with my drawing. Now look at this. God saves all people, every single person in the world. He saves all people because that's connected to things in this world like bodily training and the present life. Now do you see this? There is a temporal 
blessing, salvation, you could say, a temporal restraining from wrath, a temporal pouring out of common grace blessings that God gives to every single human being. When does he give everyone these blessings? When does he, quote, save everybody or hold them back from wrath? Not eternally, but in the present life, which is the same life in which bodily training happens. Eating food, exercising, all those kinds of things, right? Now look at this. So the living God is the savior of all people in the present life, the life when we have a physical body before resurrection. But God is the savior of believers especially. Now when, when is that happening? The risk of completely losing us here. Especially of those who believe. This right here. Especially of those who believe. When does that happen? Well, that's connected to what? The life to come. You can even follow my scribble here. The life to come. So God, yes, God gives us all people blessings in this life, but he especially gives blessings to believers in the life to come when unbelievers don't get those blessings. So when you look at this verse, it does not teach unlimited atonement. I don't even, I'm not even convinced it's referring to the atonement directly in, in, in some of this, but what it's saying is this. We've set our hope in the living God, the Father, who is the Savior of every single person in this present life, but he's the Savior eternally of believers in the life to come. So the Savior of all people here is not referring to the universal atonement. It's referring to God the Father's common grace blessings that are given to all in the present life. And then, of course, the atonement applies to and saves eternally believers in the life to come. So I don't think that verse teaches uh, unlimited atonement. Here's what uh, Henry Blotcher says. He's, he's quoted by Riccardi. The immediate context of 1 Timothy 4.10 introduces the duality. Bodily exercise does bring some profit. We could speak of even a temporal salvation with our bodies surviving for a period of 80 years or 20 years or eight days. But the exercise of godliness is fruitful at both levels. What are the levels? Earthly, and Paul could have said especially heavenly. So I think in context, that makes the most sense out of that verse. Paul does not restrict the benefits of godliness to the higher level since some affect also life in the body. The duality obtains with God the Father's saving work. It secures the goods of present life for all, common grace, and the life of the coming age for believers only, end quote. John MacArthur essentially agrees with this view. He says, in both cases, he, I think this is God the Father, is their savior. In this life, all men experience to some degree the protecting, uh, here we go, in this life, all men experience to some degree the protecting, delivering, sustaining power of God, but believers experience that to the fullest degree for time and for all eternity. So again, I don't think this text is about the uh, unlimited atonement view. I think it's rather teaching common grace and God's uh, restraining grace uh, during this age. Well, I said I was going to get through all the world texts and other texts uh, this video is already too long, so I'm going to stop there. I will probably make another video regarding the text involving Christ as the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, God so loved the world that he gave his son, and uh, texts that seem to imply that Jesus bought with his blood, it seems, those who apostatize and eventually fall away from their faith. But I hope you found what we looked at here helpful. If you're not convinced, I'd say go back and either uh, rewatch or go back and find the different texts we looked at and go study those texts in their context and see if I'm misrepresenting them or if you think that I'm presenting them correctly. But I really do think that there's a good case to be made for particular redemption.